0: Let's let's just start by going before the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts that may be somewhat distracted and the busyness of getting here. So I ask, Lord, that, that you would help us quiet our hearts now as we have the privilege of opening up your word, as we have the privilege of learning more about our hearts, as we have the privilege of learning more about you and your mercy to us and all the benefits of the cross, how we can even boldly come before your throne now, asking for help in time of need because of the finished work of the cross. Thank you for loving us, your Lord, so much. You sent your son to pay the penalty for the. Our sin and giving us forgiveness and giving us new hearts and newness of life and adopting us and giving us your grace enabling grace to follow you and to humble ourselves before you and thank you for your word thank you Lord that we can open it up freely to know you and to love you more and as we learn and talk about this very difficult topic of pride God I ask for your help Lord, I I know this can be hard to hear. It has been for me even this week and having my heart exposed and revealed more, but it's good. It's so good because we know we can draw near to you. We know that you have given us mercy and grace and we're no longer slaves to our sin and we have all the gospel realities and the truths of what you've done for us in Christ. So as we learn about God, I pray that these women would not feel condemned, but would feel convicted where it's necessary, and that they would leave here with hope and encouragement in pursuing you by your grace. We pray for Wellspring kids. We ask, Lord, that you would Just be with them and bless their time together and soften their hearts to know you. God, we commit this morning to you and ask that you would be glorified. And it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so let's start by turning your notebooks over. And we're going to do just a quick look at the disciplines this morning. We're going to look at Wellspring's purpose, and that is to learn and to grow and to encourage one another and unite our lives around these spiritual disciplines that we're going to talk about. And eventually, these disciplines will be a natural flow of our lives. That's our desire. And discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular the Gospel. The biblical disciplines all start, we've heard this now, all start with the heart. Hopefully we're getting a better understanding of what we mean by heart. Everything flows from our heart. That's our wellspring verse. So we must be shepherding, counseling, leading, guiding our heart to the word of God, to meet with him, to meet with Jesus. To grow in our love for Him and our dependence on Him and humble ourselves before Him. And this takes discipline. Takes discipline. We have to be purposeful. We have to not settle for anything less. And discipline too is about our household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. We want to give off an aroma of Christ there, in our homes, of someone who loves God and someone who meets with Him and uh, loves meeting with Him in His Word. And we want to make an impact right there in our homes for the Gospel. And it can be very easy for us to play leapfrog over those relationships, right? Whomever we live with, it can be really easy to do that. For some of you, it may be your husbands. For some of you, it may be your husbands and your children. And for others, It's your family members, like siblings, or your parents, or maybe even roommates. But we must be concerned about those in our home. And we must be concerned for those who enter into our home. The gospel, the aroma of Christ, is the impact that we're called to make there. And then thirdly, discipline three is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling our ministry within our household... Discipline 1 and 2, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God in the gospel. And this is how we're going to be in one another's lives. In the church and outside of the church. And if we seek to live out the gospel and share the gospel, we do that because we want others to know our Savior. And now these disciplines, they're not strictly sequential, meaning that you can only move on to Discipline 2 when you've graduated from Discipline 1 because what? We never do. We never graduate from discipline one. We never graduate from discipline two. So you're going to be stepping into people's lives, in the church and outside of the church, as we practice and as we grow, in these disciplines. So, um, last week, we looked at the flood. We looked at, uh, we looked at our hearts before the flood and after the flood. And Genesis tells us, Genesis 6, that every intention, the thoughts of man's heart is, is evil. Only evil. Continually evil. God in his judgment, he sends the flood. He blocks out man except for Noah and his family. And now there's eight people left on the face of the earth. And then we saw that after the judgment, the same thing is still true of the human heart. The intent of man's heart is still evil. The judgment didn't fix the problem with man's heart. They were left hoping for a better deliverance, remember? Now, we have the perspective of looking back at that better deliverance. We look back at the cross and all that it accomplished to give us a new heart, one that is now capable of loving God. And Today, we're going to look specifically at what the word has to say about a prideful heart and the danger to which pride exposes to our hearts. And I've had, and I'm going to say this because it's true, and it took me a while to get here, the privilege of looking at all week long my heart and how prideful it is, how, how dangerous it is in studying this throughout the week. Last year Chris taught this, and... And, then, and Sarah taught it on Saturday, and in God's providence, <laughs> He had me teach it this this year, and that is good. I, I'm very thankful. I, I know that I'm prideful, um, but you know, usually I'm not the first person that I think of when I hear the word pride or arrogance. You know, I'm usually thinking of someone else first. Pride is a lot easier to identify, especially in in someone else, than it is to define. But we've seen over the last few weeks the condition of our own hearts, and that they're prone to deceive and being deceived. So just to make sure we understand how pride displays itself, and that we're seeing it in our own hearts first, let's start with some questions. And this is from, we used these last year, Chris did, 41 Evidences of Pride by Nancy Lee DeMoss. And I'm not going to read 41, just picked a few. But here you go. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband, or your pastor, or other people in a position of leadership? Do you give undue time or attention or effort to your physical appearance? Your hair, makeup, clothing, body shape? Or are you proud that you don't waste time on that? See, it goes both ways. Are you proud of the schedule you keep? How disciplined you are? How much you're able to accomplish? Or are you proud of how laid back you are? Are you driven to receive approval or praise? Or acceptance from others. Do you generally think um, that your way is the right way? The only way or the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit? easily offended? Get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense? trying to leave a better impression of yourself it's really true? Would the people at church be shocked if they knew what you were like at home? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin? Do you have a hard time sharing your real spiritual needs and struggles with others? Are you excessively shy? Do you resent being asked or expected to serve? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Or do you get irked and impatient with people who aren't? Do you tend to be controlling, you know, of your husband or children, friends? Do you frequently interrupt people when they're speaking? Does your husband or anyone else feel like you can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain? about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, your church. Are you more concerned about the problems, needs, burdens your own problems, needs and burdens than others? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or maybe your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things to God? or to others do you neglect prayer and the intake of the word do you avoid being around certain people because you feel inferior compared to them you don't feel like you measure up is it hard for you to let others know when you need help either practical or spiritual when is it the last time you said these words I was wrong Will you please forgive me Are you sitting here thinking how many of these questions apply to someone you know? Ouch. Well, I don't know about you, but if this were a test, I would get a big fat F. Has your picture of pride or arrogance now changed? We need to be reminded pride is something that we all Struggle with. So let's look at God's concern for pride in the heart. It's on the back of your outline, number two. And if you weren't here last week, they're at the table, but we're continuing on from last week. <clears throat> Remember, we looked last week at the first passage here, Deuteronomy. When Moses was giving instruction to Israel regarding a king someday, it says the king was to write a copy of the law. He was to read it all the days of his life. It says the word will prevent him from lifting up his heart above others in arrogance and pride. It's the king of Israel, and he was he was to be on the same level ground as everyone else. God's revelation of Himself, His word, that was going to do the levelling. So he needed to keep it close to his heart, preventing him from lifting up his heart. Above others, And the same is true for us. We need to continually being exposed to the word at the heart level to, to help us, to prevent us from lifting up our hearts above others in pride. We need to remember how desperately our hearts need his word. And you don't need to turn there, but Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates it. And he says, assuredly, he will not be unpunished. This is God's response to pride. It will not go unpunished. The Son of God, he was punished for our pride, for our arrogance at the cross. God didn't change his mind about how he feels about it. Christ became my sin. That my arrogance was to God. So you can turn, please turn, to Hosea. Hosea thirteen. And this is a clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel, and it's at the time of Exodus, it's in the wilderness wanderings, and God is looking back. Hosea starting thirteen, starting in verse four. He says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, he says, they became satisfied. God says, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, what happened? Their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Do you see how dangerous a prideful heart is? It leads to forgetfulness. Spiritual amnesia—we forget God. There is this inherent danger of our, um, in our satisfaction with being comfortable, having God's provision, being blessed, and having satisfaction. That's when we need to watch out. We have to watch out for our hearts at that moment. That's when our hearts can become proud. And that's when our hearts can forget God. And none of us are exempt from this. None of us. There's never a day that we won't have to watch out for this. It's so much easier to cry out to God when things are hard. You know, we're reminded to do that, right? When relationships are hard, financial problems, health, those trials, they help us see our need for the Lord. But how can we be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied when we're comfortable It's what we've been talking about all along in the disciplines it's discipline one we must bring our hearts to meet with God in his word he's the one who keeps us mindful of our constant ongoing need for him and he does this through his word so in Hosea we saw one way we saw one way pride might show in our lives we, we forget God we find ourselves using the excuse of saying busyness for forgetting God for not meeting with God and his word or not praying do you feel convicted of pride then? see that's the part of what's so tricky about rooting pride out of our lives, it wears a lot of different faces we don't always recognize what's going on behind sin so we're going to look back. We're going to, or we're going to look at some several faces of pride this morning to help us see, so we can get a better understanding how to battle the sin of pride. So turn with me to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter twenty-six. We're going to jump around a little bit, but you'll find First, First and Second Samuel's, First and Second King, then there's the Chronicles. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1 says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah... I'm so thankful to Sarah. She helps me pronounce these hard words. But. <laughs> all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. And verse 4 says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord... God prospered him. King Uzziah, he did right in the sight of the Lord. It says he continued to seek God. And as long as he did, God prospered him. And verses 6 through 15 describes all kinds of victories and achievements. And it tells us why. In verse 7 it says, God helped him. And then in verse 15 it says, it says Since his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped. By whom? Who helped him? God did. God helped him. Until he was strong. He was marvelously helped by God, but what happened? He became strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud. Remember, pride is the overflow of our heart. It's the same danger we saw in Hosea, success. Success is very dangerous to our hearts. the very thing even that we pursue sometimes, right? Sometimes more than holiness. Verse 16 says, His heart was so proud that he had acted correctly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So now how is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act? How's that being unfaithful to the Lord? Well, he says that Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him... Eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. I mean, just picture that in your mind. Can you imagine? Eighty priests going after him. They opposed Isaiah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary. For you have been unfaithful, and you'll have no honor from the Lord God. Isaiah was unfaithful to the Lord because he overstepped boundaries of authority God had given. The Lord had marvelously helped him. He had granted him success, granted him victories, but service in the temple was reserved for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. It wasn't his to take. Burning incense isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing, but Isaiah wasn't qualified to do it. It wasn't his role. So how about us? Are we ever tempted to grasp authority (coughs) that hasn't been given to us? Ever tempted to work around maybe our husbands, boss, parents, rather than humbling ourselves and going to our husbands or our boss or parents, teachers, elders, small group leaders, mentors, and ask for their guidance? Ask leadership. Maybe even it's appropriate to ask for permission. A lot of times, we want what we want, and we want it now, right? Remember, we're busy. We're busy. We don't want to take the time. Rather than thinking, what would honor God? What would honor Him? But really, that's pride when we don't do that. And Now, maybe maybe Uzziah, he thought he was entitled. Maybe he thought he was entitled. After all, he was king. But again, he wasn't. He wasn't entitled. It's so easy for us to have an attitude of entitlement as well, right? Like, I'm entitled to something for me. I have a right to me time. I'm entitled to respect, especially for my children. I'm entitled to appreciation. I'm entitled to comfort. Well, here's what helps me see it in my own heart. How I react in my heart when I'm not treated the way I want to be treated. How I think I'm entitled to be treated. I mean, we live in a culture that says, we deserve and you can just fill in the blank. Fill it in. We deserve a break today. We deserve time alone. We deserve respect. We deserve fulfillment. We deserve happiness. We deserve health. We deserve retirement. But that's pride because we think that what we want is more important than what God has for us. What about laziness? It could come from a sense of entitlement, right? Because I think I'm entitled to do what I want to do. I'm entitled to my time. So let's think about what laziness might look like in our lives. It's might look like over overindulgence in sleep, entertainment, maybe TV, magazines, movies, books, games, computer time. We can all relate to that one, right? I certainly can. Reading blogs, Facebook, emails, my new one, Pinterest. Not that any of these things are bad. Okay, Did you guys hear me? You really need to hear when I say that none of these things are necessarily bad at all. But we can just mindlessly allow ourselves to get distracted until suddenly we realize what should have taken just a little bit of time has now taken hours, and we are neglecting responsibilities. Responsibilities. Laziness might be defined as putting anything ahead of our responsibilities. It's like a selfish ambition, a selfish game. I'm going to say it again. Many of these things we battle, when we battle laziness, are not bad things. But anytime we put what we want to do or think that we are entitled to ahead of what God has given us to do, spending time with Him, helping our husbands, caring for our homes, our family, our roommates, serving the body of Christ, reaching out to the lost, anytime we're putting ourselves first, which is what the world would say we should be doing, right? That's pride. Pride very convicting, isn't it? And this is, This is just one great passage, though, that helps us to see how one sin can easily lead to another kind of sin. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority or laziness. Sin has partners. There's connections. It brings others along, right? So keep your finger there. We're going to come back to second chronicles, but let's turn to the New Testament. Let's turn to James. James chapter 3. Now, in chapter 2, James has been dealing with those people in the body who were drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment, especially for the rich. They dishonored the poor, and he gives some instruction and some warnings. And then in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, chapter 3:13, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, where? (coughs) In your heart. Hey, Watch out. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition or where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. See, if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts, if we have selfish ambition in our hearts, it positions us to be arrogant, to be prideful. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, if that goes unchecked, it it, just, it leads to arrogance. and Arrogance leads to bitterness and selfish ambition. So we need to be wise and we need to watch our hearts. Again, this passage, passage in James, it helps us to see how one sin easily leads to another kind of sin. And the good news is that when we fight sin strategically, by His grace, it might help us in defeating some other ones. Like a chain reaction, like, like dominoes versus just dealing with one. It might actually help us make ground in battling other sins when we deal with with the root issue of the pride that's in her heart. So, so far, we've seen a few faces of pride, of forgetting God, a sense of entitlement, overstepping our boundaries, laziness, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And if we go after the root, and we see that, and we repent of pride, we'll actually be doing battle with these other sins. And because one sin is often tied to another one, we need to train ourselves. We need to train ourselves and even ask others to help us. To make these connections to help us to see it in our hearts. And you know what? We could we could probably at this point just be done, right? This is so convicting. We could just pray and say amen at this point. But I'm gonna ask you to hang in there. Because we're gonna look at some other faces of prayer this morning. Let's go back to Second Chronicles. This time let's go to chapter thirty two. And we're gonna look at King Hezekiah. Chapter 32, starting in verse 24. It says, In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Other translations say a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. I NIV says he did not respond to the kindness shown him, because his heart was proud, it says. Another face of pride. He didn't respond to the kindness God showed him. Maybe he wasn't thankful. So, let's look at this. How might we fail to respond to God's kindness? Romans 2, 4 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Do you hate admitting sin? Do do you ask for forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else? Or your sin's affected someone else in some way? Well, we can really be tempted to ignore it, right? To think everyone should just move on and forget about it. They're doing fine. But that's failure to repent. A failure to respond to God's kindness. If you want to see what true repentance looks like, read 2 Corinthians 7 later. See the zealousness. But not responding to God's kindness and repentance is evidence of pride in our hearts. How about contentment? discontentment and complaining are a failure to respond to God's kindness a failure to recognize God's kindness to all of us in all circumstances a complaining attitude so easy well for me to fall into anyway i mean we can complain about our appearance how hard we work how tired we are unbelieving family members difficulties with the people that we live with or work with financial problems Self-pity, because we just think our lives should be different somehow. Complaining in any form reflects a discontented heart. It does. It's discontent because on a heart level, we're really believing that we deserve something better, something different than what we have right now. We don't really believe that these circumstances are God's good for me, His best for me. And believing that is a failure to respond to God's kindness. And Second Chronicles 32 says that that's evidence of a prideful heart. And then look at the consequences of that pride at the end of verse 25. It says, therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. So do we realize the impact our sin, our pride will have on others? That they may experience consequences for our sin. But verse 26 gives us some encouragement. It says, however, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who did? Who humbled his heart? Hezekiah did. Both he and the, and then it says that, uh, uh, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. And that gives us encouragement, doesn't it? That God was willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And that's the hope of believers. We have the hope who live after the cross. That Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our pride. And he gives us a new heart so that we can repent of pride. That's good news. All right, let's turn to Obadiah. Obadiah, is another way pride may be displayed. And Obadiah is this little one chapter book between the book of Amos and Jonah. It's probably really crisp and white, maybe. <laughs> we're going to start in verse 2. He's prophesying against the country of Edom. Now, they were descendants of Esau. Remember Esau and Jacob? They were twins. And Jacob is who God renamed Israel. So Israel, they're the descendants of Jacob. And Edom are the descendants of his twin brother Esau. And there's a lot of animosity between these two countries. And so God's prophesying against Edom. So here we're going to see another face of pride. And this is really, really serious. Obadiah starting in 2. Behold, he says, I'll make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. There it is, right there. Arrogance of heart deceives. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? So what face of pride do we see there? He says the arrogance of your heart has what? It's deceived you. And we saw last week The heart is easily deceived. It's the best deceiver. So how are the Edomites deceived? Well, God's saying that he's going to bring them down. And they persist in prideful, self-confidence, self-reliance. It's like, who's going to bring me down to earth is what they say. And that's proof of an arrogant heart, of a deceived heart. It's refusing to believe God's word. So how could a prideful, self confident or self reliant, self sufficient heart show up in our own heart? Okay, here's here's one way that when we were talking about this that we thought would that we thought might be a good analogy. All right, how many of you pray about we know you pray, but we're talking about a really, really big decision you need to make. There's a challenge in your life and you're praying. Okay. You don't know what to do. You need wisdom. And so you pray, and that is very, very good. You should. Praise God that through Christ, He's made a way for us to come before His throne of grace. That's what He wants us to do. So then, why am I bringing up prayer when we're looking at the warning of deceptiveness and arrogance of heart? It's important that we understand that there is a right way to pray when we humble ourselves, we thank God. We ask for his guidance to direct us to biblical principles and help in the decision to seek wisdom in choosing people who can offer wise counsel. Prayer is a time to examine our motives, admit how easily deceived we are, to admit how easily we persuade ourselves, our own hearts, to do what we want to do and admit that, to confess sin, and certainly to remember the cross. Prayer is an amazing gift that He's given us. It's a time to draw near to Him. But what happens when a prideful heart intersects with prayer? I'm not talking about the prideful heart that's coming, broken, contrite. That should that should be all of us. No, I'm talking about um, the heart that or I'm not talking about the heart that is coming in in, in humility, ready to confess then ready to repent of pride. I mean a prideful heart that is not a prideful heart that's not repentant, that is self-focused, maybe with selfish ambition, self-confidence. That heart might pray, but it doesn't humble itself before God. It doesn't examine itself with God's Word. It doesn't really want wise counsel. Now when I'm in that condition, when I have unrepentant pride in my heart, my heels are dug in, I'm self-focused, I'm self-grasping, I may very well deceive myself. And I may come away in prayer having convinced myself, having convinced my heart, what I want is actually God's leading. Even if it's contrary to God's word. This is so serious. Do you see how dangerous a prideful heart is? Because if I convince myself in prayer to do what I really want to do in the first place, it's a very hard thing to challenge. If one of you has a concern about what I'm doing, about my decision, and you come to me and you ask really great questions, you raise biblical principles and concerns, how might I respond? I prayed about it. I prayed about it and I've just thrown out the Trump card, right? Now please Please don't misunderstand the point here. Plenty of times when we say we've prayed, we have. We've prayed in a really humble, biblical way, so we need to hope all things about each other. Okay, But when that's been the case, we will probably be open to questions. We'll be open to questions, and and we'll be open to biblical counsel from others. See the difference? So let's be careful about how we ourselves pray. How we make decisions, how we ask God, humble ourselves, and others ask for help from others. Ask for help and seeing. Where am I not seeing what I need to see? Am I being deceived? Here's the deal. Deceptiveness of pride is especially hard to do battle with because of the very nature of deception. It's what? It's deceptive. We just can't see it. And the only way to battle a foe we can't see is with what? It's with truth. We need truth. We need the truth from God's Word. We need to be shepherding our hearts with the truth of the Gospel. And we need help from the body of Christ. Do you see how these all flow? Discipline 1, Discipline 2, Discipline 3, how they all flow together. There's protection in shepherding our hearts with God's Word and in being concerned with helping one another shepherd hearts well and asking for help. I hope you understand that and see that. So, well we we've seen many different faces of pride and when pride is exposed in our hearts, what should we do? What should we do when we're tempted to forget God? Often through success and blessing. We're not staying within our authority, when we feel a sense of entitlement or laziness, we're not responding to God's kindness, we're not repenting of sin, when we're complaining and discontent. When there's bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, even fear. I mean, the list is endless. It helps to try to recognize that there are connections between sins, partnering with each other. One sin rarely operates on its own. So we need to fight sin strategically. Deal with that pride when it's exposed. By God's grace and in the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. Confess, repent, seek forgiveness from those that we've sinned against in pride. These are all the things for which Christ died. Because pride exposes our heart to danger, we need to ask God, Oh, please show me. Show me where pride exists. Show me where I tend to be arrogant. And God, please give me the eyes to see it. We need to ask Him because it's so easy for us to see pride in others. But not in ourselves. That's the effect of sin in us. It blinds us to our own pride. What do we do when we see others being arrogant? Well, We certainly should see it as an opportunity to ask the Lord, God, please make me so nearsighted to see my sin before I see it in others. Help me to see the big honking lock sticking out of my eye, Matthew 7, and repent of that so I'm ready to go help my sister with her speck we humble ourselves and we repent of pride. So let's take a look at what God's word says about humility. Humility its the opposite of pride. Let's turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter 5. So what is humility anyway? Well, William Law, he's this 18th century dead guy. He says, humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. I love that. It's so simple. It's a right judgment of ourselves. And A.W. Tozer says this, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He's accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he stopped caring. He's not concerned with others' opinion. And 1 Peter starting 5, starting in, in verse 5, uh, is addressing young men to be subject to their elders. And then he says, All of you, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you see how he says, All of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Humility is something that has to be lived out in relationship with one another. Left to myself, I'm not going to see my need for humility, really. But when we're in a relationship with others, our heart is exposed, and we're in a better position to see. You know, like when we're criticized, for example. When we're rebuked, or admonished, or exhorted. It's so easy to feel hurt, isn't it? Or misunderstood and get defensive. But that's pride. So if feeling, it's as if feeling good about ourselves is more important than seeing the area where we need to grow. So we can see it as a good thing. Now we must be very, very careful how we go to one another in humility. And the passage continues. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves. Where? Where? under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here he shows us how to humble ourselves. He says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay, now stop. He calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care he has for us. It's actually pride if we're rejecting his care. C.J. Mahaney says this about this verse in his book Humility. He says, Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So the solution is to humble ourselves where? Under God's mighty hand. Under God's mighty hand. So when we need to humble ourselves before others, before our parents, before a husband, before a boss, when we need to confess sin or when we're criticized or when we're rebuked, we need to look beyond that person to the mighty God who cares for you. He's the one you're humbling yourself to. He's the one who is at work in you for your good. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves and of our Savior. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to the cross. It's crying out and admitting just how prideful we are, and thanking and praising Him for what He's done for us at the cross. God poured out His wrath against our pride. He set us free. We're no—we're no longer slaves to pride. We're no longer slaves to pride. That's what makes repentance a joy. Remembering, Jesus is our only hope. And he is our more than sufficient, abundant hope for cultivating a heart of pride. A heart of humility. A heart of humility. And to being near him. Being right with him is better than anything a prideful heart or attitude will ever offer us. Okay, let's turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Starting in verse 12. Not only will a humble heart draw us near our Savior, it will also draw us near one another. Isn't that awesome? Look at Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Now watch how Paul starts out with who we are, our gospel identity. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, there it is, who we are in Christ. It says, because of that, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So There's two things we don't want to miss here. The first one is the command to be humble is grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And if we are to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts with a steady diet of the gospel. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes Jesus Christ and the realities of the gospel. And then the second thing we don't want to miss is humility serves a greater purpose. Humility serves a greater purpose. It's essential for building unity and love between believers, and that displays the work of the gospel. So the world will know we're His disciples, and isn't that what we want? Remember what Scott's been teaching us about our slave identity. That you know, we're not our own. We're not our own. We're His slaves. And he's entrusted us with the greatest treasure, the treasure of Christ's finished work on the cross to pay for our pride, to pay for our sin, so that we can walk in newness of life and all the gospel realities. So we can live with one another in such a way that the world says, wow, look how they love one another. Look how they care for one another. That's just not normal. Why do they do that? That kind of living in our homes Schools, workplace, church, it adorns the gospel. It puts Christ on display. It declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ. So let's finish up with looking at Philippians 2. Turn with me to Philippians 2. This is a perfect passage to end with because it brings us right back to our Savior, the only place we can cultivate a humble hearts, starting in verse one, Philippians two, starting in verse one says, "Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're called to be." Not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love, unity with the body of Christ. Similar to Colossians 3, there's an appeal to unity and to love. And what does that require? Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with what? Humility. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. There it is, humility. And verse four says, "Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also look for the interests of others." Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now listen to what this says about our Savior, and it's a familiar passage, and it's so easy to just kind of skip over it, but don't miss this. It says who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasped after. And aren't we people who love to grasp, to just take what we want? But Jesus, he didn't grasp. He (coughs) emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave. Jesus took on the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's how we've received enabling grace. The grace to turn from pride in all its many, many faces to humility and to love. Because Jesus gave himself on the cross to bear away the penalty for our selfish ambition, our sin, and to break the power of sin over us. And to give new life in a love relationship with himself and his people. That's the power of the gospel. These are the things we must bring to the cross. These are the things which Christ died for. So we can let him go. We can repent and we can follow him. That's how we humble ourselves. By drawing near to the cross. Where we find the glorious hope for living with one another in unity. We've been looking at all the ways that pride can try to get its foot in the door of our hearts. We need to remember. We need to remember that we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and go to the cross where we find forgiveness and the power to change. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for paying for our sinful, prideful, attitudes, and hearts. We acknowledge that we are so easily deceived. God, would you help us see, help us see where we are prideful in our relationships with one another, in our homes. God, would you help us to deal with the pride, confessing and repenting and remembering the grace that you've given us to do that. So we adorn the glorious gospel that it is. As we go to our discussion time now, Lord, I pray that we could even humble ourselves there in being truthful and and encourage one another with the hope that we have in you and putting off the pride that we're convicted of. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have, in your word, helped us see I see this as such a such a blessing and a and a good thing to be convicted. And thank you that there is now for those who are in Christ Jesus no condemnation. I pray these women would leave encouraged and motivated to pursue pursue you, pursue their relationship, their love relationship with you and one another. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just just a reminder: your homework is not due this week. Um, if you did not turn in your homework, will you please uh, last week? Will you please go ahead and turn that in? Oh, yeah. And if you're if when, when you're um, serving over there in the morning and you miss the teaching time. Uh, Come back in here and pick up um, a CD of the lesson. Michelle is burning it for you immediately and serving us that way. And so you should be able to come back in and get it right away. And hopefully that will be helpful to you because we really appreciate you doing that.